While she was translating a collection of Indonesian short stories called People from Bloomington, Tiffany was also reaching out to publishers. One prominent publisher of Indonesian literature and translation said that, you know, to him, he felt that the stories were fine in Indonesian, even humorous, but they rang false in English. I guess there's any number of ways to interpret that, but it seems sort of like, oh, why is he writing about Americans, right? She realized even people who publish translations of Indonesian literature assume it's only interesting if it's about Indonesia. This week on Interstates, we talk with Tiffany Tsao about her translation of the great Indonesian writer Budi Dharma's book, People from Bloomington. If you haven't already guessed, it does not take place in Indonesia. Then, Adrian Pontecorvo reviews a new release of a concert put on by Bluesman's Sun House at Wabash College in 1964. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. When I was a freshman in college, I toyed for a minute with the idea of majoring in philosophy. I really liked thinking about big ideas. But then I took note of how philosophers wrote. Kind of boring. So I decided to major in English so I could think about big ideas with interesting characters and plot. Later on, I realized I was also interested in society and culture, and my intro philosophy class was mainly focused on whether a boat was still the same boat if you replaced every piece of wood it was made of. So, I was an English major. I graduated with a degree in English, having read a lot of poetry and novels written in England and the U.S. Literature written in English. Maybe I could have predicted that. I'm not knocking my college, but for a 19-year-old who wanted to learn about the world through literature, maybe it would have been nice if the English department hadn't left the rest of the world to comp lit. I'm not sure when I started to notice the gaps in my literary education. Definitely by a decade later when I was starting a PhD in American Studies. You might be surprised to hear it was in American Studies that I really started to be exposed to literature from countries other than England and the U.S., Quick plug for American studies here. Turns out the field is interested in the U.S. in relation to the world, the U.S. as an empire, what it means to imagine yourself as part of a nation. It's also interested in the Americas in general, which of course goes way beyond the United States. Anyway, the point is, even if you can't read five or six other languages, you can still read literature from around the world through the magic of translation. It's worth it. Translated literature is worth reading. I know some people think it's a second-rate version of the original, but you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said 100 Years of Solitude might have been better in English. And imagine reading a collection of short stories about your small Midwestern city that was originally written in Indonesian in 1980 and only translated into English 42 years later. If you're from Bloomington, now's your chance. The Indonesian writer Budidharma came to Bloomington in 1974. Like so many others, he was here for school. He was already an established literary figure in Indonesia as a writer of absurdist short stories. He came here to get a master's degree in creative writing and then a PhD in literature. His dissertation was on Jane Austen, if you're curious about that kind of thing. But more importantly, while he was here, he started writing stories inspired by the people around him. He finished the stories in Europe on his way back to Indonesia, and he published it in 1980. It was called, fittingly, People from Bloomington. But in spite of the fact that the whole thing takes place in Bloomington, in the heart of the American Midwest, People from Bloomington was never translated into English. Until now, of course. The book came out on April 12th, and I'm excited to talk with the translator, Tiffany Tsao. Tiffany has translated five books from Indonesian into English, and her translations have been shortlisted for or won a number of prizes. She also writes her own books. She has a novel called The Majesties and, so far, two-thirds of the Odd Fits trilogy, a fantasy series. Like Bodhidharma, Tiffany has a PhD in literature from an American university, UC Berkeley in her case. She lives in Sydney, Australia, where it is getting into the night as opposed to pretty early in the morning here in Bloomington. Uh, Tiffany Tsao, welcome to Interstates. Oh, thanks, Alex. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Um, and congratulations on this new translation. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I want to start by talking about the stories themselves. They're all in the first person, told by a single, relatively young men. All these narrators uh, seem really kind of lonely. They want to connect with other people. But they're also so maybe fragile that they're ultimately more interested in punishing people who think they have wronged them. 
Dharma wrote in his introduction that the narrators of all these stories are are figures are portraits of torment. He wrote, whether he's trying to do good, act indifferently, or behave badly, he's tormented just the same. These narrators become victims of their own self-absorption. Another way to put it is that they're sad and lonely and they puncture a lot of other people's car tires. Uh, there was a lot of that in the book. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about what drew you to these stories. Oh, yeah. So I first came across the collection in 2016. So I was back in Indonesia visiting my father. And I happened to come across the uh, reprint or the third edition that had just come out uh, that year in 2016. And before in my literary research as an academic, I had come across Bodhidharma's name and mention of the collection. But I, I, you know, I thought, oh, I'll look it up one day and I'll read it. It looks very, it sounds very interesting. And it happened there to be there in the bookstore on the display table. And I thought, yes, I'm going to get a copy. And I read it and it was just so exciting. I couldn't put it down. The characters were so eerie and creepy and they were so funny, the the stories as well. And I was just, yeah, drawn to them immediately for all of those reasons. Then I spent the next two years talking to people about how it would be so cool if this collection were translated and thinking, oh, maybe one day I will translate it, who knows, or try to translate it. But um, for a long time, I was convinced that there must have been some translation out there that I didn't know about. So I went hunting, and it turns out there was no translation yet. And so um, then another author, and um, who I translate, and a friend as well, his name is Norman Erickson Basaribu. So he asked me one day, oh, do you want to be introduced to Bodhidharma because maybe, you know, you said you wanted to translate his collection. And I said, yes, that would be great. And so then um, Norman was kind enough to arrange actually a meeting. So we ended up going to Surabaya so I could meet Bodhidharma and get permission in person. And then Bodhidharma had to ask his publisher uh, of the original edition. And then uh, it went from there. Yeah. What was it like spending time with these characters? I think the collection has a way of sucking people in because they are, you know, you get into the head of the narrator and the narrator himself in all of the stories tends to be quite lonely, but also a bit misanthropic. And, you know, they all the narrators often spend a lot of time indoors staring at the world, out, you know, outside or on the street staring in at, um, at other people. And so there is a way that uh, the stories themselves pull you in. But also because I was translating the bulk of this collection during the pandemic, during lockdowns and, um, you know, time where you really couldn't go out that much or were advised not to go out that much. I think that was when I really got sucked into the collection. So I usually try and write and translate at the same time. But during the pandemic, I ended up working almost exclusively on Bodhidharma's collection, uh, just because I have small children too. And online school was just a complete disaster. And the only headspace, time space I had to, to do any work was on the collection, basically. So I began translating, you know, one story after another, after another. And yeah, it was just really, I began sort of almost seeing myself and our world reflected in the stories, which, you know, I think even in non-pandemic situations that probably would have happened. But yeah, it was just completely exacerbated by um, the lockdowns um, we were experiencing and the whole pandemic where basically you kind of yearn for human contact, yet deeply feared human contact. And that's in the book as well. The narrators loathe people, but also just are so lonely. They can't bear to be without people. So they come into contact with people and they're like, why am I in contact with this person? They're probably going to give me some disease. So yeah, it all sort of yeah came together in this big ball. Do you remember any particular moments when the the two worlds were just got completely kind of enmeshed? Yes. And then this is a bit of a sad moment, I guess, because Bodhidharma actually passed away of COVID uh, in August last year. 
And um, I even remember at the start of the, the pandemic, you know, and no one knew what was going on with COVID exactly, you know, um, how to best prevent it. And I remember sending Buddhi Dharma a text message on WhatsApp saying, oh, just be careful, just take these precautions. And he said, oh, yes, don't worry, you know, taking taking care of ourselves, um, you know, him, him and his wife. And there was a point when I was translating the short story, Mrs. Elberhart. In that story, the narrator becomes friends with an elderly lady and the elderly lady passes away. But then the narrator becomes convinced that the elderly lady's wish would have been to, to, to have been to be remembered for posterity. And so he thinks, what is the best way to do this? And then he starts thinking, oh, maybe I'll write a poem and I'll submit it under her name. And that way, everyone will know Mrs. Elberhart for posterity. And then it got to the point where Bodhidharma got really ill. And then I was like, oh, no, we're like in the story where I'm, you know, it's not exactly the same, but I'm translating his words. And then his words will be under his name for posterity in the English speaking world. And it just felt like very weird in the novel. You know, the story ends in on a bit of a dark note. So then, um, yes, that was sad. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is really sad, but also kind of creepy because, yes, the story is kind of creepy and and the, the dark note that it ends on. Yeah, I mean, but it feels like... It felt like something out of a Bodhidharma short story. You know, because the stories are, I think, on one hand, sad, on the one hand funny, but funny in a very black way. So I think that, that, that it was that kind of thing. It was it was almost like you could have zoomed out and then we were in a Bodhidharma story about it. I want to get more of a sense of Bodhidharma in a minute, but I have another question about the experience of translating versus writing, especially as you're spending time with these characters. You know, I've never written a novel, but I've heard from other novel writers that as as you're writing a novel, you really are spending time getting to know the characters and things like that. Is it a similar feeling or is it distinct to be translating someone else's work and getting into the head of the characters? Yeah, I feel like it's a bit different because um, like writing, I feel, yeah, you're starting completely from scratch. So you're almost, yeah, you have to imagine and, and create everything again. So create the characters and, you know, even when you're revising, you think, oh, that's not quite right I better change that I feel like that's not what the character would do or I feel like you know this thing aspect should be different so you can change a lot of those things but I feel in translation it's set like there is a distinct impression that you've gotten from the the book or the story and that's what you want to convey that impression after reading you know the story you know multiple times and then you end up reading that multiple times and you end up rereading your translation multiple times so yeah it's almost like um it's it's already there for you you just have to kind of go according to what is already there so i think it's more yeah there's more structure involved i feel it's more free yeah free flow in or i don't know um you, free range in, in writing So I'm interested in thinking about some of the bigger ideas that this book brings up as well. One of the things I was intrigued by and kind of excited by was the way it reverses the colonial gaze, having this great Indonesian writer publishing stories about white men in the American Midwest. But there's kind of a tension there too, I think. In one of the introductory essays, Intan Paramedita talks about how um, Dharma is creating a distorted reflection of Western society with a mirror held up by a third world author. But at the same time, Dharma himself writes, and you also reiterate this in your introduction, that for him the setting was not really that important, it seems like, that it was somewhat um, coincidental. If he'd been in Paris or New York or whatever, it would have been people from Paris or New York. I'm curious how you think about the tension between the universal drive in mm, these stories. Versus the specific. Yeah. 
Okay, so versus the location specific aspect. Yeah, well, I mean, um, first of all, I guess it would be good to place it in the broader context of uh, Bodhidharma's work. So actually, Bodhidharma was quite well known before this short story collection even. And he had actually uh, published, he was very famous for his short stories, which were all set in Indonesia, but primarily um, absurdist and very um, abstract, so not very specific with location. So I would say that, yes, uh, people from Bloomington and then uh, the novel Alenka were the first location-specific ones. But then after, that seemed to have initiated a shift in his writing because after that, he did write a novel, Raffalus, which was actually very much set in Surabaya. So in that case, it was very location-specific. So it does seem that Bodhidharma, depending on where he was, um, would actually shift uh, locations, depending. And so um, in that respect, I think it is true to the, that idea, right? He happened to be surrounded by Bloomingtonians, I guess, and that was just what he ended up writing about at, at the time. So I don't really necessarily see it as a tension. Yeah, especially, especially when, you know, you think about it in that sense, that uh, you can see that sort of shift depending on wh which location he was living in and which uh, environments inspired him. Because after that period, he never wrote any Bloomington set wor work again. Um, yeah, and there is one short story actually called My Friend Bruce, which is set in uh, Hawaii. And that was when he was happened to be at um, in Hawaii for a, a short stint in their graduate, um, like a year-long graduate program of some sort, yeah. Also related to this, in terms of thinking about these bigger issues, you wrote that you hoped this translation would prove useful in ongoing debates concerning the ethicality of writers making use of subject matter and experiences that are not theirs. And I wonder if you could talk about how you hope that this book will be a part of those conversations and debates. Yeah, well, I mean, primarily, right, the issue with those claims that, you know, like white or Western authors make is that they say, oh, you know, the literary imagination is free to roam wherever it wants, because, you know, people are all the same everywhere. And I can completely imagine myself in someone of a different cultural background's shoes, right? That That's in theory, but practically what we see, right, in, in the Anglophone world, at least, is mostly that just goes in one direction, right? So we have lots of colonial novels set in India and set in um, Africa and set, you know, in because um, that's just the way the, the power flow uh, has gone, right? So I, I, I just think it's interesting to then throw into the mix something by a, a non-Western or non-white writer writing something about the West and about, you know, like, yeah, Americans in the Midwest and, you know, say like, well, if the literary imagination is actually free, then in some sense, this needs to be also a valid portrayal as well. And a portrayal that's interesting also to these same people who claim that the imagination should be free to go wherever it wants. And I say this because it was actually, um, we did, I and also um, the agent who represented this book did receive some, um, I guess, negative feedback regarding whether the book would ever find a publisher. So um, one prominent publisher of Indonesian literature and translation said that, you know, to him, he felt that the novels, the, the stories were fine in Indonesian, even humorous, but they rang false in English, right? Um, and I mean, there's, I guess there's any number of ways to interpret that, but it seems sort of like, oh, why is he writing about Americans, right? Um, and then, you know, uh, the feedback that my agent received from one publisher was, you will never sell this book. And I think partly it's because, right, when people think of a book by an Indonesian author, what do they think of? It should be about Indonesia. It should tell us about Indonesia. Maybe, you know, there should be some palm trees. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. But, you know, like, basically, right, like, um, you know, I, I think that that was the very strong message. All right. Um, so I think it's just nice to have to just show people in the English speaking world, look, you know, like Indonesian authors can actually write about lots of different things. And they've had lots of different experiences too. You know, Bodhidharma was in Bloomington, Indiana. It's not like he's just making this up out of his head. He just spent like six years there, basically mostly, right? So, yeah. I think that's a really useful way of thinking about it. And 
kind of wild to hear the responses, especially from like a publisher of Indonesian literature in translation. Yes, yes, that was, um, yes, <laughs> surprise. That was surprising to me. Dis- that was disappointing to me. Disappointing. It was disappointing to me. But not necessarily surprising. Um, I don't know because, like, I was a little bit surprised that. I guess the opinion would be su- expressed so frankly, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's not surprising because I mean that's often why people publish Indonesian literature because they want because people want to know about Indonesia. That's the only reason why a person would pick up a book about Indonesia, right? So we don't like we pick up you know French books for what they have to say about the human condition or you know greater philosophical insights, but we don't think that about Indonesia. But why, right? It's time to take a short break. When we come back, Tiffany talks about a Twitter thread about Indonesian literature that she wrote in a notebook. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Tiffany Tsao is a writer and translator. Her most recent translation is a book of short stories by Indonesian writer Budi Dharma, set in Bloomington, Indiana. A few years ago, she noticed that even when Indonesian literature gets a spotlight, it focuses on just a few writers, which leaves a lot in the shadows. So she had that thought and then decided the best way to address it was on Twitter. I mean, basically what happened, right, was that um, it was the London Book Fair, which is a big publishing industry thing. And uh, the, I forget the particular term for it. It's not the guest of honor. It's something like, but the spotlight country that that year was uh, Indonesia. And um, yeah, it was just frustrating because all of a sudden, like, I guess there seemed to be big stakes riding on it. Like, it's exciting when a country gets, you know, to be spotlighted at these kinds of events. And there was an essay that it turned out was republished under a different name. So it's an old essay and it actually was supposed to be on a very specific series of Indonesian books and translation, but it ended up being republished. And I think whoever the, the center who had republished it decided to call it like, where are all the Indonesian authors or something like that. And the, but then the essay ended up being like, because it was a essay that they dug up, It was actually on a very specific set, but it looked like the essay was just saying, this is all the Indonesian literature and translation that's out there. So what happened was that I was, for some reason, just becoming increasingly agitated. And I think that's what Twitter does to people. (laughs) But then, then, you know, all of a sudden, I, you know, I was like, oh, no, this is awful. People are just going to think that this is all the Indonesian literature and translation there is when actually there's like a lot of like different things that are out there. Right. Just, you know, there's a lot of different things. So then, um, you know, because I'm 39 now and because I'm like not very, I wasn't very good at Twitter back then, I composed an entire tweet thread in a notebook. (laughs) And, you know, because, yeah, and then like I proceeded to haul my small child to a indoor play area and then go back and forth between, you know, tending to them and typing out like each successive (laughs) tweet on my laptop. And then I was just like, okay, now I've gotten that out of my system. (sighs) But then all of a sudden it kind of blew up and I was like, oh dear. And then I found out that, yeah, the essay actually had been republished, you know, that that was the, the actually origin story for the essay. And it actually had a different title to begin with, but then they just sort of like decided to make this other title that was, I felt very misleading. Um, Yeah. And then I feel like a lot of people were mad at me. And then I felt like, oh, that was very stressful. I don't know if I want to do that again. But then again, you know, I was so agitated. And it's true, they shouldn't have published the essay under that title. It was a very misleading title. So anyway, yes, that, there we go. <laughs> that was a very long story, Alex. I can't believe you made me tell the whole, <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> I think it's a good story, actually. And it is kind of, it is funny. Um, now, this is coming from someone who's also not good at Twitter. I haven't tried to compose an essay um, basically an essay and post it on Twitter. And, you know, it's a totally legitimate thing to do. I think there's some really people do a really good job. And I thought yours was really interesting, too. But it was funny because at one point, like halfway through, then it ends up starting with a new thread, I think, or something. And Oh, yeah, because then it like the thread got cut. And then I was like, oh, I have to link to the new thread because I didn't because I was posting that one at a time. <laughs> 
<laughs> while dealing with my like screaming, I forget how old he was. It was 2015. Oh, I forget. I think it was 2018. Does that sound right? No, LBF was 2019. Yeah. Oh, okay. 2019. 2019. So three years ago. Yeah. I must have been dealing with my s- smallest child. Anyway, yes. <laughs> That's so funny. But you were making, I think, an important point about the ways that, like, a spotlight on a particular set of Indonesian authors in translation then, like, erases others. Yeah. And I think the big issue has been. Um, Sorry, this might be too inside baseball, but I had issues with, you know, that same publisher of Indonesian Literature and Translation. You know, they, I don't know if they still do, but at the time they kept saying that, they insisting that they were the only organization dedicated to translating Indonesian literature. So it kind of felt like they were just sucking like all of the spotlight to them when there were like actually lots of different initiatives. Dalang Publishing in California does Indonesian Literature and Translation. I, you know, volunteer for an organization called Intersastra, and we were doing a lot. We do a lot of um, Indonesian literature and translation as well. So it felt a bit like, oh, you're basically like just pretending nothing else exists. And it was just a bit bizarre, I guess. Um, but then, yeah, then I found out like, oh, yeah, the essay is actually on that very specific thing. But then, you know, it was so much so that like, I was getting stressed out because the essay was like, people were like, this is great. I didn't know this about Indonesian literature and translation. I'm like, no, there's other things about Indonesian literature. There's other, there's other works out there. Like there aren't like a giant amount, but there's like a lot of other like little things out there and big, you know, like exciting things out there. So, yeah. I would love to hear about if we, okay, this is sort of a huge question. I'd love to hear about Indonesian literature. And I just want to preface this by saying, (laughs) I know, I know, it's crazy. I was thinking about asking this just over the course of our conversation. And, you know, it's like asking someone to talk about, like, the breadth of American literature, which is, you know, there's an incredibly wide range of different kinds of things. Well, I guess I just want to say, like, it sounds banal if I say it like this, but, you know, it's I, I just want people to know it's very diverse yeah, because Indonesia is a very diverse place. Historically, right, you know, Indonesian literature, like any national literature, has gone through certain stages, you know, and certain movements, right? So, the you know, throw all of those into the mix. And, you know, even now, right, people are writing, like, just lots of different things and lots of different styles. And then add to that the fact that um, Indonesia has quite a vibrant, I would say, in, in comparison with the West, maybe, uh, or in comparison with modern day Anglophone publishing. Sorry, I, it's just because my knowledge is very limited now, now I think about, now that I think about things. But, um, newspapers in Indonesia would publish st- short stories frequently. You know, there are lots of little magazines and lots of little journals that were out there publishing poetry. Um, yeah, as well as like, yeah, as I said, uh, mainstream newspapers and magazines. So um, there is that sense of the material culture of the material literary culture being, you know, very vibrant, very vast and in some sense ephemeral because those kinds of things were not necessarily documented or, you know, made into a book. And, you know, we've seen actually, I think the Indonesian literary scene transform with globalization, right? You see more of an emphasis on, on books um, to be considered a quote unquote, you know, real author, great author, right? But you know, when Budi Dharma was writing in the 1970s, right, all of his short stories were published in newspapers, magazines, you know, that that sort of thing, right? And he was still considered like a very prominent essayist uh, author at the time, um, even before he uh, did his graduate studies in in Bloomington, which he actually only did in his when he was in his forties. So um, yeah, so actually, I want to get back to that too. Can you tell me a little bit more about his career? So he was born in nineteen thirty seven, and um, his father was uh, worked in the postal service, and so he moved around to various uh, towns in Java. And you know, he did an undergraduate uh, degree in English literature at um, Gajah Mada University, which is like a top university in Yogyakarta. And then he became a university lecturer. So it works a little bit differently in Indonesia. It's often possible to become a lecturer um, after having done an, an undergraduate degree. And then you later, while you know, after you start working for the university in that capacity, then you can go back and do your um, graduate studies. So get a master's or get a PhD. And so that's what Bodhidharma did. 
So he uh, got funding from, I think, some uh, foreign organizations. Oh, yes, a Fulbright and then a Ford Foundation fellowship or scholarship to do his master's and PhD. So that's that. And then I uh, went back to Surabaya, continued teaching at a, um, the state university there. Basically, like, I just think it's really, it's, the problem is with Indonesia, like, I feel like it's hard to quantify it in the same way, because in, at that time, you could get very famous without having published a, a book. Like, he had a whole issue of a very well-known literary journal devoted to his work before, you know, going to Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, so it's just, that's just something to, like, it, it's interesting, right, because it's just a, like, it just makes you realize, like, oh, the ways we have now of valuing literary work in this day and age and in this maybe uh, geographic sphere or language sphere or, you know, not necessarily like common, not common sense, but, you know, they're not just set in stone. Yeah. This is not specifically about people from Bloomington, but it is about translation. I was fascinated by your essay talking about the your translation of the book Sergius Seeks Bacchus. And I wonder if you could talk about the struggles you had around gender and queerness as you were working on that project. Yes. So as you will have known from reading the essay, actually Indonesian uh, doesn't have gendered pronouns. So the third person pronoun especially is, is gender neutral or um, gender fluid or, you know, it's just a third person pronoun. So you can't tell if it's a he or a she or, a, you know, yeah. So that, that was one, that was one issue um, that came up because, well, I wouldn't, at first I was just worried I was mistranslating pronouns. And so I kept asking uh, the author, Norman Erickson Basaribu, am I mistranslating this pronoun? Is it actually a he? Is it actually a she? And Norman would say, it's actually queer. It's a, it's just the pronoun. It's just, you know, and um, yeah, so that was interesting. And that made me realize because I, I think to me, I was like, oh, look, in English, because English has gendered pronouns, it's making these poems come out as, you know, queer. And then Norman's like, I, well, I feel, I feel like the poems are already queer. It's just, um, but it's just because I was thinking with that English mindset, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like, oh, this pronoun has to be a he or a she, and we need some sort of gender, you know, we need to reveal the gender. Is it he or she or they or, you know, but yeah, in Indonesian, it's sort of effortless. That's not to say that obviously that there's not massive homophobia in Indonesia, but um, yes, it's like pronoun, pronoun, pronoun wise, it's less complicated. I was going to say, it seems in a way, it seems freeing to have these non-gendered pronouns but maybe it's not necessarily if you still have massive homophobia. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, well, first, yeah, I don't want to represent myself as Indonesian because I'm actually I'm just Indonesian heritage and I lived there for a long time. I, I identify more now, but I'm always worried that someone's going to say, oh, she's, she's passing herself off as Indonesian. And actually, technically, she's not. But I guess also, like, I think, yeah, what happens in Indonesian is that then people just assume the pronoun. <laughs> Like, so they'll assume it's a he or a she, you know, kind of like that, you know, the riddles where it's like a man and his son were driving in a car and they got hit by a train and then the man died and the son got wheeled into the hospital. And then at the sight of them, him, the doctor turns pale and say, I can't operate on him. He's my son. How is that possible? And it's like, oh, it's because the doctor is his mother, because we assume the doctor, you know, so the doctor in that story is the, the pronoun, you know, um, the genderless pronoun, and people just say, oh, it's a he or it's a she. Yeah. In their heads. So how did you ultimately deal with that in the book of poems? I worked very closely with Norman. And, yeah, we just worked closely together. And, you know, there are some, I mean, there's one poem where he basically just translated it on his own in a way. Um, and, you know, I just felt like it was important because, because you know, I'm not queer, right, um, to be able to to have Norman express the the poetry in you know the words that he wanted to and the pronouns he he wanted yeah so I just felt like it was important to be le led in that that situation and so 
Yeah, so that's why we worked really closely together on that. And the same thing for um, his recent short story collection, Happy Stories Mostly. So that was long listed for the International Booker Prize, which was very exciting for us. But yeah, so similar issues with the pronouns where, you know, even after the, the whole thing is done, dusted and published and Norman's like, oh, that last one should be a they or, you know, or that one, I feel like it's a sh- it should be a she and or a he. And, you know, I was like, ah, <laughs> If you're just joining us, we've been talking with translator Tiffany Tsao about translating gender-neutral pronouns, Indonesian literature, and her most recent translation, a book of short stories called People from Bloomington. When we come back, Tiffany explains why there are so many old people in the book. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers. When Tiffany Tsao was translating the book, People from Bloomington, she noticed the stories were peopled with a lot of old folks. She'd been talking with the author, the great Indonesian writer Bodhidharma. Finally, she decided to just ask him. And, you know, he said, oh, well, it's because he encountered so many old people in, in Bloomington. And he said that he, he really loved to go walking. So that's one aspect that also made it into the stories. You can see that there are lots of narrators who enjoy walking a lot or who will walk throughout Bloomington a lot. And Bodhidharma did that. And he said that, you know, it got to the point where he had memorized every street, every alley. And he said while he was out on these walks, he would encounter old people um, and some, some of, you know, not all of them, but there were some old people who would uh, literally chase him down to tell him their stories. And he said one of them showed him a sheriff's badge and said, you know, talked about how he had been a sheriff back when he was, you know, in his younger days. And another person said that, you know, he was a member of a band and they toured the States and it was really exciting, but then proceeded to tell Bodhidharma about how all, um, one by one, all of the band members had died, all of his friends had died and he was the only one left. And then, you know, he said that, you know, he encountered people who would go out to the supermarket, buy a single item, go back home to rest, go out to the supermarket again, another supermarket to buy another item and go back home just because they were very lonely. Yeah, so that that was interesting, actually. And I think that you can see that loneliness and that, I mean, the old people are cantankerous, but also you do feel kind of sorry for them. And that I think that's definitely there in, in the, the collection. Yeah, I feel like they're so, cantankerous does seem like a good word, protective of their own identity and space and, and kind of set in their ways, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it does seem like it's, you know, it's all these... Not, I, I mean, I guess there's the story about um, the couple who have the son, but otherwise it seems like mostly the stories are, uh, yeah, these younger men and sort of surrounded by older people living in these neighborhoods. And it sounds like some of the things he experienced were a little bit as odd as some of the things that happened in the stories, too. Yes, yes. I, I think that must have been the case, I feel. But, you know, his earlier short stories, too, are just so... Strange, the people behave in such strange ways. So maybe that just is also that as well. Yeah, from, from his accounts, he said that he just very much enjoyed his time at Bloomington. He really just enjoyed it. Um, so That's good to hear as a, as a Bloomingtonian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was funny reading it and hearing all the street names, seeing all the street names, and recognizing you know, so many of the street names, but also knowing that the geography is a little off. You know, a number of the the numbered streets are like, they actually run east-west, but he mentions north and south 10th or whatever. And so there was this really kind of enjoyable experience of having this familiar place kind of made strange. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because at first I was, I had a map of Bloomington. Well, I was translating, I had a map and I would say like, this doesn't join with that street or this street doesn't exist. And he was like, this, this is fiction. I have changed some things. <laughs> and I was like, ah, yes, yes. Okay. Keeping that in mind. Yeah. It took me a second also to accept that. Like, as I'm reading, it, I'm like, no, he didn't get that right. Like also this is fiction. So I can accept that. <laughs> all right. Well, this is great, Tiffany. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, no, not at all. Thanks, Alex. That was Tiffany Tsao, a writer and literary translator. 
Her English translation of Indonesian writer Budi Dharma's short story collection, People from Bloomington, was just published by Penguin Classics. Up next, we have a review of an old concert that's just been released as a new album. In his early years, Sunhouse had no intention of becoming a bluesman. He hated secular music with a passion. He was born into a strictly religious family in Lyon, Mississippi in 1902 and named Eddie House Jr. By 15 years old, he was giving sermons. In his early 20s, he became a paid pastor. That job didn't last long. House started drinking and having romantic affairs, and he couldn't bring himself to preach a lifestyle he didn't practice. By 25, Sun House had left the pulpit. That's when he turned to the blues. It was a chance encounter. House says he was on a walk one Saturday night when he ran across local musicians performing at a house party. One of them was playing guitar with a bottleneck and making sounds House had never heard before. He was captivated and spent the next year teaching himself to play. Years of singing in church and his newfound love of what he saw as decidedly non-religious music led House to develop his own style. He layered powerful, rhythmic strumming with impassioned lyrics, making for blazing acoustic sounds with a unique intensity. In just a few years, Sun House had become a bluesman's bluesman. When the legendary Charlie Patton heard House busking, he started inviting him to recording gigs. By 1930, House was making records for Paramount. They didn't sell as well as they'd hoped, but it wasn't for lack of skill. Alan Lomax even recorded House for the Library of Congress archives in the early 1940s. House was one of many African Americans who moved from rural communities in the South to urban spaces in the North during the Great Migration. In 1943, he left Mississippi and headed for Rochester, New York. But Rochester wasn't a good place to make it as a bluesman. Instead, House got a job working in manufacturing that got him through World War II. Later, he went on to work in one of the few reliable engines of class mobility for black men at the time. He joined the Pullman Company as a train porter. Decades passed. It wasn't until the mid-1960s that a group of promoters tracked him down. They encouraged him to return to music. In the midst of the folk blues revival, he became a sensation, playing at folk festivals across the United States and Europe for the next decade until his second retirement. One of the early shows of this renaissance was in 1964 at Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Sunhouse had just finished a series of live shows, including a set at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, when he started touring Midwestern college campuses. Only the Wabash College show was taped in full. For decades, the recording stayed in the collection of Sunhouse's manager, Dick Waterman. Now, they've been painstakingly remastered and released in the form of new album Forever On My Mind, out now on Easy Eye Sound. Forever On My Mind is unlike most other live albums. There's hardly a sound from the audience. Just about the only thing we hear from start to finish is Sunhouse over the slight hiss of old tape. It feels fitting. Sunhouse's blues always sound stark. And on Forever On My Mind, he's completely unadorned. As the album starts with its title track, he plucks out single notes in a slow, bare-bones melody that gradually leads him into languid chords. House's voice is as expressive as it's ever been, an appropriately bluesy balance of strong, groaning, and gravelly. Even after decades of retirement, he's clearly a capable singer. In a single verse, he will glide from the main vocal line up into easy falsetto and then ground himself with earthy grunts. Tell me you love me, but I believe you told a lie. We get a better sense of Sunhouse as he launches into preaching blues. He picks up momentum and shows off his sense of humor. I want to be a Baptist preacher so I don't have to work, he sings. The crowd laughs. It's one of the only audience reactions on the whole album, and it's a turning point for the whole show. It seems to invigorate House's performance. His vocal delivery gets stronger, his riffs get fuller. From this point forward, there's a new energy to every tune. Sun House is back in his comfort zone. 
Each song spins a meaningful narrative on multiple levels. On Empire State Express, House sings about his woman leaving on a train he can't stop. His guitar picks up steady speed. His voice might not quite hit a whistle pitch, but the volume is there. It's clear by the end of the song that the train has left the station. Death Letter comes next. It's a true tragedy, as House mourns a wayward lover who has passed away and reflects on the sorrows intertwined with love. Underscoring the emotion here are House's eerie, dissonant chords, spaced out and beyond melancholy. The dynamics of his voice shift to reflect the many facets of grief, pain, anger, sadness, resignation. The rest of the album feels like true archetypal blues, with House singing about heartbreak and hard labor over sparse accompaniment. Every track is a poignant reminder of House's roots, transporting us to the early days of Delta Blues. It's hard to imagine what the room must have felt like the day that Sun House came to Wabash College just from listening to Forever On My Mind. His resonant strings and heart-rending vocals cut through an almost overwhelming silence on every track. Maybe it's the silence of a spellbound audience. Sun House in the 1960s was still a masterful storyteller. There's as much fire to his singing here as on any of his early records. Another point crucial to this album is how much care the Easy Eye sound team has taken in mastering these recordings. This isn't a surprise. Easy Eye sound is operated by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys, whose production credentials are well established. Still, it's easy to overlook the work needed in both respecting and restoring archival music for a contemporary release. Here, that work is masterfully subtle. House's instruments, voice and guitar alike, are clear and present. The emotion that makes his voice so important comes through in spades. It's been 120 years since Sun House was born. It's been 58 since he came to Crawfordsville, Indiana, as a master musician all but forgotten. That day, he played to a fresh crowd eager to connect with blues of the past, and he did it superbly. Forever on My Mind keeps the memory of Sunhouse's Wabash College show alive, an invaluable record of his style for a new audience of listeners everywhere. I went down to the station. I said, I lean up against the door. You know, I went down to the station. I said, I leaned up against the door. You know, I know that imposter any time I hear blow. That was Adrian Pontecorvo reviewing Forever on My Mind, a new release of a 1964 concert by Sun House at Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Okay, one more thing about people from Bloomington, and I just mean general people from Bloomington now, not the book. There's a couple blocks on 4th Street with restaurants from around the world. A few years ago, I was out in front of a taco truck, and I heard a theory about why. I'm Martin. I'm a French native from Bloomington, Indiana. Isn't the story about, like, diverse food in Bloomington because during the Cold War, I think the CIA asked IU to... um, to get all these departments about different languages. And so they had to bring families from all, all across the planet. So the families had to find something to do, right? And so they were creating all these restaurants. At least that's what the myth is about and what I heard about, right? I think that's the story. Why do we have so many different languages and departments on campus? And why would you have like such an international food street on four streets? So you're saying 4th Street is because of the CIA? Remotely speaking, yeah. <laughs> but isn't anything about the CIA anyway?
You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Tiffany Tsao and Adrian Pontecorvo. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, let's listen to something. You've been listening to Ice Cracking with Traffic somewhere in Bloomington, Indiana, winter 2022. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Mm